Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We are so proud to bring you these great people who make up our community, not only to talk about their accomplishments, but more importantly, to highlight the type of people who are our friends and neighbors and who contribute to the special place that Bighorn is. We are also honored that these podcasts are supported by people and companies that allow us the ability to bring you these stories for the last seven years. Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for nearly 80 years. Bighorn Properties, the standard by which others are judged, and by being an integral part of the community has the knowledge to represent you better than anyone can. Eisenhower Medical Center, who not only can provide world-class health and wellness services, but by being such a huge part of our community, cares about you and your quality of life. Back Nine Greens, who makes works of art worldwide, and they are right in our own backyard, no pun intended. Call them to enhance your property and to improve your short game. Corliss Estate Wines, whose reputation for excellence has won awards and critical acclaim around the world, and their wines are always available in both the poorhouse and the steakhouse. I appreciate all of these supporters of the Bighorn Podcast. Once again today, we will present to you a story about the ups and downs, twists and turns that permeate all of our stories. Our guest is Bob Hammer who with his wife Anne has been a member since 2022. Bob's accomplishments have been many, most recently as the head of Commvault Systems from 1998 to 2019, at which time he retired. But he's not finished yet, as we will be talking about in today's podcast. Thanks, Bob, for joining us today. And tell us your story, which starts in Brooklyn, New York. Well, thanks, Martin. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, tell a saga or a story. Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn in 1942, at the start of World War II. My dad was in the Army Air Force, so shortly after I was born, we moved to uh, Corsicana, Texas. As I remember, we lived in a basically a shack, it was a little wooden shack. The bathroom was underneath the stairs, I would guess, 700 square feet, maybe. After the war, we moved out to Cedarhurst, Long Island. I grew up in an Irish, Catholic, Italian, Protestant neighborhood. I was the only Jewish guy on the block. Didn't matter. We all had fun. Those were the simpler days. Uh, we, we spent days with our families, lots of sports. We were near the beach, so I, we spent summers at the beach. I would call my upbringing kind of middle, middle class. I think our first home was probably 1,000 square feet, maybe 1,200. It's a little home with a yard with a picket fence. I was the gardener, the dishwasher, the hedge trimmer. Yes, I was a picket fence painter. Grew up uh, with a younger sister who's uh, 10 years younger than I, and we're still quite close. In fact, she moved to the desert here when we moved here a few years ago. My parents grew up during the Depression. They were educated as teachers. They never taught, but uh, that was their education. From an influence standpoint, I'd say my dad was probably uh, had the most influence on my life. He was a tough guy. He didn't mess around with my dad. Let's put it that way. But but we were we were close. You know, he he would say, um, 
something like, if you're going to do something, uh, do it right. When I was uh, probably 11, 12, he was finishing out our basement, and I became his assistant on Saturdays, helping him do that. He'd make a comment, never send a boy to a man's job, meaning always have the right tool in your hand. He taught me how to swim, as I recall. We just went out in the ocean. He threw me in the water. <laughs> Waves are coming in. Swim to shore. That was how he taught me. Wave hit me. I'm down, floating around. He kind of grabbed me, picked me up. He also taught me how to play golf, which is a great passion of mine. I was not a great athlete, but I did everything. Baseball, football, ice hockey, basketball, skiing, little boxing, weightlifting, fishing. Sports was, back then, kind of part of what we did. To give you a little flavor of Cedarhurst back then, it's mostly wooded. My mother would take me to the uh, train crossing. There was, a, there was an old black gentleman there. We used to chat. And when the train comes, he would crank the gates. <laughs> no TVs, obviously, no refrigerators, no washing machines. They had an ice box. The guy would come in and put ice in it every few days. We didn't have our own telephone. We had a party line. So you'd pick it up. Somebody would be talking in the neighborhood. So those are kind of early days. Uh, the other thing uh, in my upbringing, we... Work was just part of what we did as kids. When I was 10, I think I was in Cub Scouts, and I built these little planters out of coffee cans. I went to a local florist, and he was kind, so I sold some of my little planters for a buck a piece, I think. We all started to work early. I had a paper route, paid for my first large bike through that paper route. With a hundred papers, it was a real pain in the neck. <laughs> and collecting was always uh, the hardest part of the oh, job. Yeah. A collection from these people is a little kid. You know, it was a dime. Trying to get a dime out of somebody, I'd be killing myself. I'd make you know five to nine dollars, probably five six dollars a week. But if you wanted something like a bike or a new glove or whatever it might be. You had to contribute to that, if not pay for the whole thing. And that's how you got these things. Including my first car. I mean, if I wanted a car, I had to pay for it. We lived near the beach, so I, I was a locker boy, cleaning out lockers, chair boy, taking these wooden chairs out to the beach. When I was 16, I got a job, pretty interesting for a 16-year-old, assistant golf pro and caddy master, and ran the um, shop. <laughs> and the pro and I would play two guests. This is a really tiny resort, by the way, but... We played two of the guests on the weekends, and I taught the kids. That was a great job at that time. <laughs> I would think envious of this particular job that you have. Yes, and guests would be there a week or two, and so I had different girlfriends from time to time. <laughs> this, this sounds like a great job. Oh, that was fun. But right from the very start, Bob, you were taught a work ethic. Oh, yeah. That's the way your dad was raised, I'm sure. And he wanted to make sure you were accountable, that you had to do, as you said, if you're going to do something, do it right. Yeah. That bodes well for anybody's future, too. I look at it very fondly, my upbringing. And work was just, that's what we did as kids. It was everybody. When you say that you didn't have much and you were middle, middle class, None of us realized we didn't have anything because we were the same as everybody else in our neighborhood. In our neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> but not at the club. Not at the high school. Oh, okay. So in my high school, there were a lot of really wealthy families. So I looked at myself as a poor guy. I mean, you know, the clothes and all the other stuff. I couldn't afford that. My family couldn't afford that. So my high school had, I'd say, really wealthy 
a lot of kids like myself and then some poorer kids. You know, when I got to high school, it was Italian, black, Jewish. It was different, but it was fine. Did kids meld together, though? There wasn't a class system necessarily, or did that come into play at all? No, I think we melded pretty well. I went to a school called Lawrence High School. If you can picture this, it was kind of in a rural setting, a brick high school with some columns. It looked like an idyllic kind of place to go to school, and it was. <laughs> so I would say I did okay as a student, but I don't think I was a great student. All my friends, most of my friends were good or very good students. Now, we all were athletes and did stuff. I think education was high, but when I was in first grade, I thought I was the smartest kid in the world. <laughs> By the time I got to high school, I found out there were a lot of people that were a lot smarter than I was. Anyway, so I did okay. My goal was to become an engineer, I thought. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a lot of details on this. I did get to college, and I did get 124 credits of ME, but I was not a good student. It was too much partying, too much golf. I was on the golf team. I remember there was an Irish guy down the hall. He said, come on, Bob, we'll just play nine. So I had a scooter, grab our clubs, get to the course, and it wasn't nine. It would be, who knows, 50, 70 holes. It would be nine. That didn't help my academic career. I was in an intramural wrestling match, dislocated my shoulder, stuck me in the infirmary in a mump ward, and the guy says, you can't go back to campus. I said, why? He said, because you're contaminated with mumps. So this is like November sometime. So I said, okay, I'll go to the fraternity house. You can't do that either. So on my own nickel, I said, well, I'll just go home and go skiing. <laughs> I did. I went, went home, went skiing, and I uh, had this really nice lady for my New Year's Eve date. Got back, got the mumps. <laughs> Now I'm out of school another six, seven weeks. That was not helpful. Let's just say, go find yourself another place to go to school. So I was, had all this engineering, and um, it was all different, differential equations. Anyway, I decided I was going to want a broader education, so I went to another small school, got straight A's, and was able to get into Columbia, which was a big, big turning point. I got into uh, Columbia uh, University as a history major, but they required three years of language. Through my dad, some other people, I was able to get a job parking cars in Paris. So <laughs> off I went to Paris parking cars during the day and taking French at night. That came with some other benefits because we had a professor, her name was Giselle. And every night after class, I had a motorcycle back then, we'd head out to Leal, which was the big market, have some onion soup at a restaurant called Pierre Cochon. Then we go to the clubs, and for 10 cents, we get a bottle of champagne. And these clubs had lady of the evening around the sides, and they let us dance and party until the gentleman came in and we were kicked out. Uh, that was an interesting, happy time. You've had some twists and turns. <laughs> yeah, more to come. <laughs> so, I got a note from the draft board, hey, um, you got to come up. You're being drafted. And I said, I wrote him a letter. I said, can't come. I'm in uh, Paris parking cars and studying French. And I got nothing. It was like, okay. And a few months later, I got to uh, come back to the U.S. or you're going to be arrested on your return. So got a hold of Columbia, 
told him I was matriculating. I was February of 64. Anyway, I matriculated at Columbia just before I got drafted. So that's with the days. I thought the education at Columbia was awesome. The classes were very, very small. We're talking about 14 to 16 kids. You were either well-prepared or you looked like a complete fool. Um, you know, the education uh, classroom was very lively, very interactive. I was a, an A student at Columbia. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So after uh, graduating, by the way, I should mention this, during that time was in an art appreciation class, and uh, I used to, like a lot of people, we'd see where the prettiest girl was and sit next to her. So one of those girls happened to become my wife, Anne. That's where we met in, in an art appreciation class. I met her, let's say, in 64. We got married in 66, so we'd been married for 57 years. So that was fortuitous. I decided to apply to um, graduate school, and I, was, I picked Columbia and Harvard. I told my dad it's what I was going to do. Oh, by the way, uh, when I was going to school, as part of this, I worked in the parking garages in New York. I was a night foreman, worked six at night to six in the morning, Friday and Saturday night. Did a lot for my social <laughs> activity. Anyway, I said to my dad, I said, well, how are you going to pay for it? He said, I've paid enough. Mom and I want to do some traveling, want to do some other things. I said, okay. Obviously, my dad and I are quite close. I said, no problem. So I went to the university, to the scholarship offices, I recall it, and said, here's the situation. What can you do for me? And all I can recall is that they said, okay, it may have been more complicated than this. We'll give you a grant and aid, 100% tuition. 25% grant, 75% aid. That, plus working at nights, I was able to get my MBA at Columbia. <laughs> so that worked out pretty well. Absolutely. At that time, obviously, you have intelligence, you have a good work ethic, but your attitude towards school changed dramatic. dramatically. Dramatically, yeah. And once that happened, of course, the results were there. <laughs> yeah. What triggered that? Just the knowledge in order to succeed, you were going to have to have a greater education? What was the driving force behind you making that change in your whole attitude? Clearly, after my prior experience, that was not going to happen again. I was so fortunate to get into Columbia, and the subjects and the classes and the professor were so interesting. It was kind of easy. I was an A student, but I wasn't that organized that, that I thought. So I had to work a little harder, and it was a great experience. And I'm still as you'll hear, heavily involved uh, with the university even today. I really enjoyed it. It was not a burden to me. It was just, it was really enjoyable. I found, too, at that time, scholastics was not as, it's not that it wasn't a big thing, but as you're hanging out, people weren't talking about what grades they got <laughs> and how they did things. We were talking about sports and, and right. ladies and all kinds of things like yeah. that. But that has to change, and when you have the intelligence that you have, because of that, things come easily. We don't learn study habits. We don't learn organization. So in order to really compete at a higher level, one is you enjoyed it, but two, you had to realize that you couldn't get by just with a smile and a handshake. Absolutely, Marty. You're spot on there. Just had to put the work in. And obviously, I, I really enjoyed it. So that was an extremely rewarding, happy time. And a turning point. For sure. I mean, getting into Columbia, doing that, which enabled me to get into the business school. And that was 
and met a lot of people there, obviously, and I learned a lot. Because my, my view was, I knew nothing about business. And when I was 15, because I was talking to my father, and I said to him, uh, when I'm 30, I'm going to be president of a company and have a car, a boat, and a plane. He said, write me a letter on that. I still have that letter. <laughs> I knew I was directly going to go in, into business. That was kind of my focus. And I had this technical background to go along with it, you know, even though I didn't get a degree in ME, I got my degree in history. That technical background, it really helped me a lot. I did quite well at the business school as well. After that, I got a number of job offers, and I went to work for a large called chemical fibers plastics company called the Selenese Corporation. And to keep this uh, short, so I started in marketing. I wanted to understand business from the bottom up. A lot of my MBA friends were going to Wall Street and this, and I wanted to work my way from the bottom and just see what it was like. I got into knowing a lot of execs at Selenese fast. One reason was I, I was there maybe a month or two, and the chairman and CEO of the corporation had a buddy who wanted to, uh, this may sound funny, get into plastic milk containers. They were just coming into play. And they said, it came down to me. I said, Bob, Bob would you work with this fellow and uh, put a business plan together and help him do that? So I did. Laid it all out. And then um, I said to my boss, I said, I thought this plan was great. If this guy doesn't want to do it, I said, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll build that business. That all didn't quite work out, but I, I met a lot of execs along the way. One of them was a fellow who ran a division by the name of Tom Bryden. We got to know each other pretty well, even though I was new to the company. We'd play golf together and some other things. So Tom knew I wanted to get into sales. He said, I got a great job for you in L.A. I said, great. So I was supposed to go to L.A., just before I, I think maybe six weeks before I left, I got a, a note, you're drafted, take your physical, you're going to Vietnam infantry, basically. That's, at Columbia, I'd met two uh, South Vietnamese Air Force pilots just sitting on the bench in Quad of Columbia. They said, you don't want to go here, Bob. <laughs> you don't want any part of this. And we had a lot of discussion. So when I started at Selenese, I met a guy, and he said, by the way, if, if you don't want to go to Vietnam, you ought to see my brother. He's a doctor. I said, okay. So I went to this guy and had a, you know, a folder that said I had an ulcer or whatever. So I had this vanilla folder. So I go to the HR guy, who was an ex-Navy guy at Selenese, and I said, hey, I got this problem. He said, so be it, boy. Go fight for your country. I got to know the general counsel. Again, playing golf. I mean, I was only there less than a year. <laughs> I said, hey, Bill, I got, I got this problem. I said, I just got this report for duty. And he says, well, what, what do you got? I said, I got this vanilla folder from this doctor. <laughs> so he says, send me the vanilla folder. I did. During this compressed period of time, my wife's father had had died and I couldn't go to the funeral because uh, her mother died sorry because I, I had a report this is I think I had a report like something like December 5th or, I can't remember but something like that and this was before Thanksgiving I sent it to Bill I get a letter do not report <laughs> and then I get another letter you are 4F so I called Bill up 
I, I said, hey, Bill, he knew the Surgeon General. That's, he, he had dropped this envelope on the desk of the Surgeon General. I said, thanks a lot. He said, I really didn't do anything. I said, yeah, you, you did. So I sent him a dozen titles, and instead of going to Vietnam, I went to L.A. <laughs> I mean. Again, another very fortuitous, <laughs> but it is about connections, and it is about people. Yeah. And you have to be open to those sorts of yeah. whatever happened. I would think that that's a pretty good trade-off, Vietnam <laughs> or L.A. So now you're in L.A. Now I'm in L.A., so I got this sales job. I had never sold anything in my life. I go and make my first sales call at this company. And it was the largest company that sold things in, in that whole, you know, in my territory. Because I had a bunch of the Western states. So the head of procurement was a woman. And I'm sitting there and I said, how much of this stuff do you buy? This is plastics, by the way. And she said, none of your effing business. And I said to myself, she was sitting there, she had a cashmere sweater on. I said to myself, June, I'm going to become your best friend. <laughs> anyway, I would take her out to lunch. Our product was better than the competitors. And she signed off and spec'd our product into all these different products they were making. I remember going to the largest molder of these um, toys because it was, it was Mattel. It was a big German guy, and he wouldn't give me the time of day. But I had to spec them. He had no choice. We're in the lobby. <laughs> I had my suit on, tie. So his name was Hans. So I said, so Hans, how much of this stuff do you use? Because you know where I got the spec, and this guy <laughs> takes us. We're in the lobby, but I thought the guy was going to hit me. Anyway, we got all this business, and we, we did well by him. We had better product, better service. Part of it, because I had all these states, and my sales manager told me, go here, go here. I said, well, the company that buys by far the most of this product is about 10 miles from my house. Why don't I start there? <laughs> I worked my way down instead of going out to Utah and Denver, and I did. I became a really good, successful sales guy. And then this guy, uh, Bryden, I'll try to keep this short note, uh, he was now running another division. So before that, I had become VP of sales. I was like 20-something. But Tom wanted me to be VP of sales of his group. It kind of pulled me in, made me VP of sales of his organization. And I ended up being VP of sales, VP of marketing, VP of strategy. And I'm in my 20s, going into my early 30s. And then the uh, corporation had Bought a bunch of business around carbon fiber and epoxies. Bunch of joint ventures around the world. And then when I consolidated, run it, and they made me the VP general manager group president of that. A young guy. I mean, I'm in my 30s. That was a, a great experience. And you, it started without any sales experience. Zero. It just is about people skills. It's about establishing relationships. Yeah, and being dead honest with your customers. And making sure they're getting value from you. I want to see... You know, as a kid, what's the trends and what's going on? It's all providing value. And some of these customers uh, helped me along the way because we didn't have a lot of tech support. So they let me to come in at plants. I worked with their technicians and those guys. So I learned the other side of the technology. So I was my own tech support guy. Which is exactly what you wanted to learn when you started this whole <laughs> process of starting from the bottom uh, yeah. and moving up. We had technical issues with one account. Sales manager flew in. He's given them all. And I, I was like stop. This is what we're going to do. Boom, 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 boom. 
And the customer agreed, and sales manager, the sales guy, the sales manager says to me, good job of knowing when to step in. <laughs> it's like, really? But, and much of this is just common sense and it, logic. It, yeah, it, yes. Made a proposal that made sense for the customer, made sense for us, and let's, let's come, let's move on here, guys. <laughs> so along the way, I had a lot of different bosses. Just tell you one incident, I was reporting this with one president of this group. We had bought a company called Narmco. I'd gone out there. They were building epoxies, but they're exothermic. You, you know, they created heat when these uh, epoxies were being manufactured. You would do experiments in small beakers so to keep things safe. So I'm watching them use a ruler and a stick and a ruler and a thermometer in these open barrels. And I'm going, this place is not safe. So I'm at the president's council, and I said, hey, th this plant is not safe, guys. And it's like, Bob, you can't say it. I said, no, I'm just telling you, it's not safe. <laughs> it's like, don't say that. I'm, I don't care. It's not, this plant is not safe. So another general manager who I knew pretty well, a guy by the name of Tom Welch, said, hey, why, why don't we get DuPont to do a safety audit? I said, great idea. Everybody agreed to that. Plant was not safe and got the company to uh, build a brand new state of the art plant. Now, along the way, we were within probably a month of moving into the new facility. A couple of engineers take a big barrel, started to mix it, a new batch of epoxy blew up. One guy died, one guy was severely burned. And it was like, I'm, you know, I'm visiting the hospital with their families. It was Saturday, I flew out. We almost got there, you know. If we hadn't had the new plant, you know, that business would have... Blown up. Blown up. Anyway, so I, I ran that group. And then uh, when I was in my late 30s, I'm now, by the way, because a lot of guys above me had been fired or whatever. And now I'm reporting to the vice chairman, a guy by the name of Bob Mitchell. I got a call. Hey, hey Bob, you're reporting to me starting today. Fine. Anyway, Bob, Bob is a good guy. But I'm, I'm looking at career now of becoming a you know becoming president of selling or whatever i'm saying you know capital intensive political and now i'm starting to learn computers or tech on my own starting to read about i said why don't i just go out to silicon valley and just quit and see if i can get a job as ceo of a startup <laughs> so i mean i had house limousines planes all that i'm gonna pull the cord here and Let's, uh, let's see what we can do out in California. When you tell your wife that this is what you're going to do, what's her feeling? She's supportive? She's... She was supportive. And that has to be the case. She was absolutely supportive. Yeah. I said, this might take a year, might take a year. And a half. I don't know, but this is what we're going to do. So you pull the plug on a very successful business career. Yeah. And you go to Silicon Valley. What year is this? This is 1982. Okay, Silicon Valley is still in its infancy. It's, it's in its nascent. Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's in it's in its infancy for sure. And so this is risk reward. So you get there, and what's the first step? Well, I start making calls, you know, and I get interviews, and I was like, "You're not a tech guy. <laughs> You're a chemical fibers, plastics guy." What do you do? You're not going to get a job running a company in Silicon Valley. Anyway, I keep banging on it, right? <laughs> and I run into a guy 
by the name of Ken Fisher. The Ken Fisher. He wasn't the Ken Fisher back then, but he's running a little company called Material Progress. He's chairman CEO. His father was Phil Fisher, who's one of the well-known investors of value investing, wrote a book. So I met his dad. Ken offered me the job as chairman CEO of this little company <laughs> that it was involved in bubble memories and especially laser crystals. That's what we did. We grew crystals and made these wafers for bubble memories and some epi equipment. And that's, that's what I did. So I went from all that. Now I'm in a company about the size of this room. It was bigger than this, but a little tiny company. And went from all this elegance to, I call it orange crates. <laughs> but I'm really happy that I made the move. While I was doing that, and we kind of owned that side of the laser business and these especially crystals, it's called gadolinium, gallium garnet for bubble memories. I'm meeting a lot of people. I mean, people along the way. I mean, Bob Noyce, somebody knows tech, one of the founders of Intel. I mean, I just go through the list, just through, you know, working, working out there. Rotating memory was moving from epoxies to thin film media coatings. And the industry needed a flat aluminum disc with zero flaws on it to sputter these thin film media on. Nobody could do it. We had the expertise. We built machines similar to the garnet polishing machines to polish aluminum. At the time, basically the only one could do it well. As that business is forming, we, we start. Problem <clears throat> with that was we had a number of steps in a process and our yields were like 7-8%. Well, you can't make money 7-8%, and we're starting to run out of money. So the VCs were in there, DLJ and a bunch of other guys. Bob, tell us you, you'll get this process, and we'll give you the money. I said, I can't. It's a process. I don't know, guys. I don't know what's going to happen with this. They said, what are you going to do? This is a Thursday afternoon. I said, I don't know. Go back Friday morning and figure it out. I sat down with my VP of sales and my VP of finance. Said, okay, let's figure this out. So we figured out if we furloughed 70% of the people tied to this disc business, raised our price 2x, didn't pay our bank, and didn't pay our landlord. So that's what we did. You know, I went to the bank, went to the landlord. It is what it is. Then I went to our key customers and said, hey, look, I got this problem. I was straight up with them. And we got to increase our price 2x because of the storm. And they did because they had nowhere to go. It was when weeks after that, we got the process down to two steps. Yields went up. <laughs> We're running both sides of the business 24 by 7. Things are looking good. I hear a rumor that Intel, and we had started to capture basically all the bubble business. Intel was the largest customer, and they had consolidated, and they basically controlled most of the bubble business world. Not all of it, but most of it. I hear a rumor that they're going to shut it down. I called the senior VP, George. I can't remember his last name. Hey, George, I hear you're going to shut down the bubble business. He said, yeah, I meant to tell you. <laughs> so I said, okay. I said, well, you know, we have an ironclad take-or-pay contract. He says, I don't care. We're not going to pay you. So I, I grabbed my... VP of sales, got my name is Joe Rutherford, a really good guy. And we go see the head of procurement. I, I said, Joe, just stay calm because I'm going to go crazy. We get in this room. Our shareholders are going to sue you. I'm not leaving this building. I'm going to take my clothes off. I'm going to sleep in this room until I get that check. And I'm screaming at him. He wrote the check. I mean, he gave me the check. So I got the check. 
So now we have cash. So then I called George back. I said, hey, George, why don't I buy your bubble business just for the inventory? I'll take it. I won't pay a cent. I'll work it off from the inventory you got. He says, okay. The other major bubble manufacturer was in Japan. It was Hitachi. And I figured if uh, we can make a deal with Hitachi that all the packaging and the bubbles and all that, they would do that. And we would make some components and, and sell them in the U.S., take the cost and risk out of this. I go to Japan all by myself. Top echelon Hitachi, get the deal. I got the deal. I go back and some group out of L.A. wanted that business and they were offering a crazy price. And our VC said, we'll, we'll match it. I said, you don't want to do that, guys. I said, we can do a lot better with our time. Uh, we let them buy it. And I'll sell the pieces out, the machines, to make it the, the disc. And uh, we'll, to some other people, we'll sell the, these guys will sell our bubble capability. I go out to dinner, and I'm with my VP. And we put a really stupid number on the bubble business. We're eating dinner. Guy says, okay. I had to leave the table. I was in my, I was laughing so hard. I just, we sold that. And then uh, we were able to sell the, this business. And the bottom line, after all this, we got all the money back to the banks. We got all the shareholder money back. And I had decided I was going to go into, uh, form my own leverage buyout company. I don't know anything about leverage buyouts, but I got this book on all these cases. Well, I can do this. It's like you have a house, you got a mortgage on it. You sell the house, replace the mortgage, and, you know, I can, I can do this. Uh, I go to DLJ, the head of Sprout Group, the venture group, head of investment banking, Tony James, who's a pretty famous guy. Tony ended up running Blackstone, by the way. I asked them, you know, would they back me, and could I use their name? And they said, yeah. Formed Hammer Associates, had DLJ's name. It was just a handshake. Any deal that we'd come up, we'd figure out, from, it was not written. It was just, we go figure out what, what, who should get what. So I start talking to people. I'm the, you know, this is who I am, blah, blah, blah. This is what I'm looking for. Had a couple of false starts that I learned something about. And then DLJ says, hey, would you restructure this company down in San Diego? I said, why? I said, just do us a favor while you're doing all your other stuff. I took over that company without getting, and I restructured it. While this was going on, an opportunity came about. Some guy in Boston, this guy wants to, by a semiconductor company. And this guy, Payne Weber, who I knew, says, go talk to Bob. Henry knows a lot about this stuff. I really didn't, but anyway. He calls me. I look at it. I said, Bert, you don't want to buy this business. It's a bad business. I said, but if you see something, I give him a little brochure. If you see something that looks like this, call me. He calls me. He said, I got this company, Noran. I said, I got on a plane, flew out, met the founder of Noran, who had flown out. Got DLJ involved to go buy this company, Noran. It was a uh, tech company, and they, they did route automation, point-of-sale stuff, and they were just beginning to develop the first kind of big wireless business. So I looked at it. I said, we don't want the point-of-sale business because this company was losing about $18 million, $19 million a year. If we get rid of that, we can get this thing and break even and build these two other businesses, cherry-pick it. Rick, who ran the venture business, and this business was owned by Pioneer Hybrid, calls the uh, vice chairman, his name is Chuck, we give him the deal, and Chuck says, I like it, I like Bob to run it, he's a good guy, 
but I don't like the price. And Rick says, well, when you do like the price, call me. <laughs> so, anyway, I kept in touch with these guys. I got a phone call. We'll sell the business to you, Bob. I said, okay. So I said, the deal is, it's just going to be me and a couple of you guys in a room. We'll frame out the deal. Because the last time I'd done it with too many people, it got all screwed up. So anyway, we framed the deal out. Rick and DLJ came in and we cherry picked it. We bought the route automation business and we bought the wireless business. Rick was building a syndicate and the other partner was a company called Wells Carson, Anderson and Stowe. And their uh, senior partner there was a fellow by the name of Kip Moore. Kip wanted to meet me because the idea was I'd come in as CEO. I meet Kip at the airport in Denver and he's got like a list of questions. What about this? I don't know. What about that? I have no idea. <laughs> I didn't answer one question, right? So Rick goes back to DLJ and says, Bob can't run this company. Because I hadn't done the due diligence. I just framed the deal out, right? And they had a whole team doing due diligence work. We bought the company. So I came in as the CEO while they were looking for a permanent CEO. All the work that DLJ was screwed up. It was a 90-10 lever deal. 90% leveraged, 10% equity when you could do a deal like that. I'd gotten pretty savvy on this stuff by now. And so let's redo this model and found out we were way off on our cash flow. We we're going to default on our loans. Same issue. Okay, guys, we got to figure this out like right now. Raise prices here, do this here. And we figured it out. And then a lot of candidates came in. Senior guy from Motorola, the guy ran computer business for uh, HP. And they decided that this guy, Fred, and I should run the company together. I said to the board, no way. You pick one, either him or me, but we're not going to do that. Anyway, they picked me, and the company was quite successful. We ended up taking it public, got rid of all the debt. And by the way, I got 5% to do the deal and 5% of CEO, plus a bunch of other options on top of that. I never put a penny in. In fact, I never put a penny in any deal I did, ever. That turned out really well, financially, for everybody. I don't know if it was a 10x or 20x, but it was uh, quite successful. Now, you have to be gaining reputation, very positive reputation. Right. Because this is still a very tight-knit group of people that do all these deals, especially at that period of time. Life is pretty good. Yeah. And I would think the options for you now continue to get yeah. better all as we go along. Because yeah. success breeds success. Yeah. People want to do business with people that have been successful, especially in an area and at a time when there's as many failures as there is successes. Yeah, I, I got a call, uh, by the way, to run Apple. And, uh, and why not? <laughs> I said, guys, I'm not a PC guy. And I had learned a little bit about the PC business because at one point at Noran, I got a call from Tandy. Hey, Bob, why don't you buy the whole PC business? I said, Bill, I don't want the whole PC. It's a commodity. Bob, it's a billion dollars. We'll give it to you for almost nothing. I said, I'm not interested, Bill. He said, well, call me Monday. I said, okay, I'll call you Monday. Bill, I'm not interested. Somebody else had bought it, took the parent and them down. I mean, I wasn't a PC guy and didn't understand it. I was a value-added kind of tech guy. I said, I'm not the guy to run run Apple. And obviously, Jobs came in, did it, <laughs> came back. It worked out. 
<laughs> he did pretty well with it. And if you look at what he did, there's no way I could have done because he had Macintosh and Next Generation Operating System. I mean. He was in a show during that time, not to get off on another tangent, but he was the visionary. I mean, he yeah. knew exactly. Exactly. I wasn't the guy, clearly. After Norand, I had bought a home in Florida for obvious reasons before the sale. And DLJ wanted me to come in as a partner in their venture business. I'm there about two weeks, had a boat, playing some golf. I said to Ann, I, I can't do this. Okay, guys, I'll come to New York. I'll, but I wanted the partnership on my terms, meaning to cherry pick my deals. I didn't want to become a full partner, which obligated me for the next funding. I was on the investment committee. I got to participate as a partner in their deals, plus you can invest alongside them. That was a really good move. I really enjoyed that. But by the way, right after I saw Nora, I founded the Hammer Family Foundation, because in tech, the culture was basically give most of your money away. And I we found that just prior to my going into um, DLJ, so they made me a managing director, all that. And I was involved in a lot of different things. I was co-CEO of a switch company. I was, I was doing a bunch of other things. They had bought this company from, out from AT&T called Commvault. I said, Bob, why don't you go on the board of Commvault, tell us what to do. So I, I looked, I mean, there was nothing there. It was just obsolete technology and there was nowhere to go. So I said, guys, you have a dead company. Clean it up, sell it, get another CEO, but you have zero chance of success here. And I said, well, what would you do? And I said, well, given their assets and capabilities, I'd build a data software company. And most of the revenue from this company was hardware, by the way. And I said, well, why don't you do that? So I said, okay, a little backdrop here. While this is going on, the switch company, I was helping them find a new CEO, working with the existing CEO, the founder, good guy. They said, Bob, why don't you, why don't you be the CEO? You know we're going to sell this. You're going to make a quick $20, 25000000 million. And I'm saying to myself, yeah. I'm not a telecom guy. I'm more interested in this idea I have. <laughs> in parallel with that, I got a call from a friend of mine who's a recruiter. He says, you got this company in Delaware. It's like, Bill, I'm not interested. I kept just go meet him. So I met him. They want you to be CEO. What would it take? I said, okay, guarantee me 15 million in use of a plane. 50 million, not 15. And they come back, okay. So I, I have this white sheet of paper with an idea. I'm going to build a data company. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Versus 25. I wasn't passionate about the $50 million. It's, the business didn't excite me. And I was more excited about what I could do with this idea than making a quick 20 or $25 million. That was, And the idea was, the reason it excited me was this. Pretty simple idea. Data's growing 40, 50% a year. It's getting more complex. Nobody's managing data, securing it, backing it up. It's data, they're backing up as ones and zeros. They take ones and zeros from one box, put it in another box. Nobody knows. Data means what's the application? Who owns it? Who has access to it? What, you know, what's inside it? You know, all those kind of things. I said, I'd rather pursue that idea. So I got into the company and I said, here's what, what we're going to do, boys and girls. And I, when, when I got in, I, I shrunk down a, a little bit. 
so we could survive. It had about 70 people. Shares were three cents. It's worth about 30 million. So when I said, okay, I'll do it, I said, give me 10% of the company in options. Pay me in stock, not cash, and I'll see what I can do. So the idea was, I went to the devs. I said, okay, we're in Unix. We're going to go Windows. Build me an architecture that looks like this. Without getting too technical, it's like I want it distributed, think million X scale, do this, do that. And the guy said, Bob, we don't even know what this is going on. Windows can't build it. I said, that's what we're going to do. So that's what we did. And everybody said, you're not going to succeed. You had all these major competitors. What we did to keep this simple is we built that architecture. The first product was we did something that nobody else could do because we were a data company. And that was uh, we could back up exchange at the mailbox level. So if you're a CEO, we could, you lose your mailbox, we could get it back for you. And we niched away in the market, but we were building a platform that nobody could see that would take all these different applications and nobody had built, was going after the business as a data company. Nobody was thinking platform with all the information. Platform meant I could take seven, eight products on one platform versus everybody else was single threaded. It was just a lot more efficient, a lot less cost, easier to use. Anyway, that 30 million revenue turned into it when I left about 700 million. The three cents a share now was $60 a share. <laughs> so, and I had been taking all the options and all that stuff. That worked out pretty well. Bob, you started out, as you mentioned earlier, you didn't have a whole lot of knowledge in any of these businesses. Yeah, good point. How does this come about that you seem to be able to see opportunity and see potential and have a vision, because you have to be a visionary to be as successful as you've been and anyone else in the industry, for that matter. Where did this come from? My gut or my intuition has always been really good. By the way, at Noran, we ended up, because of the wireless business, we had all these wireless computers running around. And how do you figure out, is it moving from space to space? From We ended up building Bluetooth. We didn't know it was Bluetooth at the time, but we, we had all the original Bluetooth patents. In fact, when the engineers came into my room one day um, and said, we just, they called it a, a auto-configurable wireless lens, what they called it, that would re reconfigure itself as things moved around. I said, guys, I can tell you, that idea is bigger than this company. Yeah, that's all I said. I didn't know Bluetooth from Adam. Anyway, that turned into Bluetooth. <laughs> Those patents ended up being worth a lot, a lot of money, $500 million to a $1 billion. I could see things. And my view in tech was, if you can see it, do it. Because not that I was ever wrong, but not many times I was wrong. And in Convol, by the way, we did make some mistakes. When we built the platform, and to do that, you know, some kudos to Al Bundu, who's my COO. 
we had just gotten the first products to market and done all this. We got to solve this problem. And he came back, took him a year, eight to me, so I figured out how to do this. It was the platform architecture. I said, ah, oh, that's awesome. I did it on a blackboard. Right after that, after he got the platform built, I said, Al, we can't manage data by going into exchange and pulling, I call it all about, about and pulling Bob out and going to this app, pulling Bob out. I said, it's archaic. I said, solve it so we can do all that virtually. And he was like, God damn it. I just, I said, I know, Al. Anyway, we did. <laughs> so I was quite successful. Along the way, we never missed numbers. Everybody thought we were on automatic until we weren't. And we had about 10 years with that business model. It was rock solid. Uh, Dell was a major reseller of ours, an OEM partner of ours. And all the execs that I knew were gone. I said, guys, we got to pull out of here. And we did all the analysis of if we pull out, move, move this to these other distributing partners, we could do this. It turned out all the analysis was wrong. So our sales flattened out. And by the way, I was always conservative on our balance sheet, so I always kept a half a billion dollars, no debt on our balance sheet. This business just was cash. I mean, it was a machine, just threw off cash. And we were 80 to 100 million a year to throw off cash. In spite of us going flat, that is not a good combination. And we were going to take the business from kind of an on-premise to a SaaS business. I was in, in my mind, I had started building data analytics, and the board, why are you doing that? What's the pay? It's like, I don't know, guys, but the world's going to go that way. And we got to build a foundation to do that. I hated it. The activists, I'm going to sit and duck. I could either duck in, do a private equity deal. And, you know, I was 70 some years old. I was like, I'm not doing this again. Uh, I mean, I could. I certainly didn't need the money. And one of the activists got a hold of it. They're doing okay with it. That vision part of it where I wanted to go. Where, where are we now? We're in AI. From day one, I said that the value of the data and what you do is going to become the most important, not data management, backup, archive, all this other stuff we're doing. That's where it's going to go. And guess what? <laughs> That's where it is. So uh, again, it wasn't that my career was flawless, but the end results were, were pretty good. Since that supposed retirement today, is driving you. I knew back then, I should say, I didn't know about AI. I knew that's where the world was going to go. So two weeks after I left Selenies, within two weeks, I, I formed Hammer Ventures, focused on AI. <laughs> so I started investing selectively in AI companies. I had been pretty successful during COVID to invest in, I was going to build my own ETF, but I found this group Corovo Global ETF Fund. I put a lot, a lot of money in that early on. I, it was March of 20. <laughs> Timing is everything. <laughs> so I formed Hammer Ventures. And when I did, just coincidentally, at the same time, Robo was going to form a, a new venture company under a lady by the name of Lisa Chai. And Lisa was doing a lot of my... She, was a portfolio manager. She, she bought Convolt stock, so I, I knew her at that time. And they formed this uh, venture group under Lisa. They called me when I seed it. I said, yeah, I'll seed it. I said, what do you need me? She said, you don't understand, Bob. <laughs> your, your name means something. I said, there's a lot of guys that have better names than I do. But anyway, I seeded that fund. 
uh, which eventually spun out from the parent and became interwoven. It's all AI-focused. I had my own AI focus and just started investing. And when I did that, I had this company I was interested to try to get funding, and I went to the VCs. Everybody said, absolutely not. I'm going, these guys don't understand. I better, I better get my own education on AI and really get to understand this. Between my company and uh, now Interwoven, I think we've invested in over 20 companies, and I'm active in quite a few of them. And then I was invited to become a member of Columbia University's AI Advisory Committee board, which they called Digital Transformation. And then through the foundation and other work I was doing, I became part of the uh, Climate Change Working Group at Columbia, so I'm involved with that, pretty active with our other foundation activities. So that's my retirement. Keeps you pretty busy. (laughs) Question, though, on that. Now that you're investing in AI, and you're very active in that, but you've always run your own companies. You've always had control over the destiny, if you will. Is this different than that? Because now you're, do you have any interest in going back and running? No, I mean, I I work with a lot of the CEOs one-on-one and helping them. Some of it is give back. Some of the some of these guys would call me to help them as they start up their company. So I enjoy just doing it and help, help me. And, and I and I learn a lot. I was on a call yesterday, um, two hours with a, a CEO. Of, he's not, no longer CEO. He's a top technical guy, but ex compound guy. They're involved in AI cloud ops. The way AI is going, companies they don't want to use ChatGDP and an open repository. They want to build their own private AI data repositories. And this company can automate all that. I learn a lot from just talking to people like that in terms of what's going on in the industry, what the trends are. And that's in your, I'll call it gen AI type of technologies. But the AI is not just gen AI, it's robotics and it's used in a lot of other fields. It's not just gen AI. So You embody a word that I find fascinating and that's being inquisitive i think anybody who's inquisitive has a greater chance of being successful because you want to know how things work and how things come about your mind doesn't ever turn off that's very astute yes people always say that i'm always interested in things question that the layman asks about ai i'd like your opinion at this moment in time it scares us a little bit well in a sense, a lot of people say it, it shouldn't, but there's no doubt that this is a massive transformation revolution occurring in a way that's more pervasive, will happen faster, have more impact to everyone's lives than any other technology we've developed. Everyone's going to have an assistant, whether it's a doctor or okay, a coder or a script writer, or because AI is going to be able to do, they can write a script, somebody clean it up and edit it, or you have a secretary that, you know, say, CEO's admin takes notes on a meeting. AI can do all that and organize it the way you want. I don't care what field you're in, AI is going to be involved in this, and it's going to just displace a lot of jobs. Now, there are those, like Andreessen, Braun, these things always create more jobs shouldn't be afraid of that. 
My comment to Andreessen would be that this is happening so fast, it's going to cause so much dislocation that maybe he's right in the long term, but in the near term, it's going to be extremely disruptive. These models, these you know, large language models, they're going to keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter as compute power goes up and they can build deeper neural networks. There is no doubt that it's going to create better medicines. Medicare is going to be improved. It's going to be, you can develop new drugs maybe six, ten times faster. I mean, it's going to be extremely helpful to mankind, but it's also going to be disruptive. You know, I used to talk to my mom. In her life, things changed in 10-year increments. Cars, phones, things like that. Big, big, big things. But they changed in that kind of a period of time. Now, hourly, or by the minute, to your point, things are changing. I'll, I'll give you a good example of that. At Columbia Business School, they're bringing AI into the curriculum, and they're trying to develop classes in each of these different disciplines, whether it's marketing or finance or whatever. By the time you develop a class, the information can be obsolete. So it's, how do we do this? How do we as a university deal with all this and how quickly things are changing? And you can't predict everything because you're correct, Marty. This is changing, pick a number, 10x faster, maybe more than any other technology we've seen. And it's going to have more impact than any other technology we've seen. Something you just talked about, too, I'm interested in. You know, we've seen now unions going on strike, and there's a lot of name and industry, and there's that kind of turmoil that's going on. How do they fight? Or how do they, because with this technology, they no longer are in a strong position right. as far as negotiation. Well, take the writer's strike. They got three-year reprieve, right? But yes, I mean, it's the answer is I don't have a good answer to that question. I think there's going to be a lot of disruption, displacement, demonstrations. We've got to legislate this. You hear that from everybody? Well, how in the heck are you going to do that? I mean, practically, you're going to form a bureaucracy with 10 million people? How are you going to govern it? I mean, I, I don't see it. There's a book called, I think it's called 2040, uh, by a guy by the name of Kai-Fu Li, who's one of the most famous AI venture guys. He's, he's based in China. Saying between augmented reality, virtual reality, AI, we're going to displace a lot of unemployment, be 20%, 30%. How are you going to deal with that? Guaranteed. Incomes, Tristan said, no way that's going to work. He has a point. I think this is going to happen fast enough that we've got to start thinking of how do we protect people as they, as they start losing their jobs. And then the kid getting an education, they, they have to be involved and understand the impact of AI on any career they're thinking about. they got to do it now. That's what I tell my grandkids. Some say, don't go to college. You don't need it today. You can do crypto the answer is go to school, learn it, understand the impacts. It's, it, it's changing all the time. It's changing fast. It's unpredictable. The developers don't even understand how these things, they understand the mechanism of AI, but these things do think for themselves in a sense, right? And they're going to think more broadly and more deeply over time. I just think as a society, we understand that we, we have a problem coming at us, and we ought to start thinking about, you know, what do we do about it against the backdrop of the Putins and the 
you know, Middle East stuff and China and difficult. We're in the most, I'll call it difficult, complex, dangerous time in my life. There's a lot of good things happening. It's daunting when you start thinking about, you can see benefits. The flip side of that coin is we got to start thinking about the negative impact on people as well. And you said complex, that's on steroids. I mean, yeah. you know, it's just because, as you said, it changes as soon as you think you may have the answer, and then it changes. So I'd like to move on and ask a couple of questions to you, of you, but I'd also like to leave open for the future that we revisit with you this whole AI future, because it's not only fascinating, it's extremely important, because you can't not talk about it. You cannot ignore it. You cannot assume anything. So I would really like you to be open, if you would, to coming back with us one day and talking more even about this particular facet. I'd be happy to do that, Marty. Tell me, Bob, you've mentioned a couple of people. You've mentioned your dad, certainly. But who are the other people that had the greatest influence on your life? I said my dad and my mother, for sure. Early in my career, certainly Tom Bryden, person at Selenies. You know, had a big impact on my career. When I was thinking about that, I know that I began to rely a lot more on myself. I always sought advice, by the way, always open to suggestion. And that's how I ran my companies. It was open door and always wanted people smarter than I working for me and, and making sure they, they knew they could challenge me on anything private or public, because that's how you learn. The big impact you know, my father had on my life. And Tom, after that, I was out uh, forging new territories here. So as you said, I, there was no script to what happened here. There is a backdrop. We live in a country that enables people like myself to succeed, which unfortunately, less and less of our citizens of this country understand, which is really unfortunate. I may have missed something. I think there are just a few people that really impact Throughout this, you talked about you had the influence on your own life because you trusted your intuition. And that's something that it takes guts, it takes belief, it takes all of that. But usually, not everyone, but trusting your intuition and being willing to take risks and being open to opportunities, which those are the things that you've always had— that's really had the greatest influence on your life as I listen. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I had a high tolerance for risk and uncertainty. There's a lot of backdrop stories that I haven't talked about, by the way. You know, I always said to me, I could get hit with an atom bomb and I'd figure a way out, right? The figure it out or having confidence that you'd find a way. You can call it courage. I don't care who was in front of me. I always figured out I could figure a way to win. But it doesn't mean that you don't fail sometimes, but you learn from that. There are chunks of things we've talked about another time of some serious issues. I can name one at Norand. We had receivables that were increasing in Italy. And back then, your order could be your internal order. So we had our orders there. It just didn't seem right. CFO and I went, talked to everybody. It all looked okay. All the documents looked good. And I had a deal with ordering for Anderson that if we uh, didn't resolve it by this date, we'd write it off, which we did. So I said to the Anderson partner, I said, we ought to do a fraud audit here. This thing just doesn't look right. He said, Bob, forget it. It's Italy. You'll never figure it out. 
I'm going, I don't think so. So I had a Scottish guy running Europe at that time. And I said, his name is Scott. Scott, why don't you go to Italy and see if you can figure this out? So one day he calls me and he says, well, it's a fraud. We got the mafia involved. We got this going on. This is happening. I said, why don't you write it up and we'll disclose it? He said, Bob, we don't know where this is going. It could take the whole company down. I said, I don't care, Scott. Write it up and disclose it. He did. Uh, one of the audit managers and went on the blackboard. And I said, this is going on in Italy. You up to speed on this? The guy's mouth jaw dropped. Scott wrote it up. We disclosed it to my board. We sent out a press release. Stock got hit. And the point is, disclose. I did that on my earnings call. Disclose, disclose, disclose. Take your medicine, move on. Now, that all worked out, but it, I mean, it took a lot of doing. Banks and all that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, it all worked out, and everybody did okay. There were a lot of incidents, things like that. And then the board said, oh, my God, you have to declare bankruptcy. Because we were at a covenant. By the way, when this was going on, we had the freedom to move money to another bank, so I had the cash. I said, guys, we're not going to declare bankruptcy. And if you want to do that, get somebody else. I walked out of the boardroom. I said, you got 15 minutes to decide. You want me to do this or you want somebody else to do this? I came back and I said, you do it. And we figured it out. (laughs) Now, this is easy. I mean, when you're in the middle of these firestorms, you have to deal with this stuff. But the point is, you find ways to figure it out. And the other thing that's important when you're doing all this thing in disclosure, you have to be really clear, have an ethical line in all my companies. Then we teach people what's right. We educate them. There's just a lot of backdrop on all this. That leads to another question. How would you define leadership? One, from a CEO point of view, you always have to have a vision that you can articulate to people that are working for you. Generally, where's the horizon? You need a game plan, a strategy on where are you, where you're going, how you're going to get there. Structure. My intuition may be a hip shot. You can't execute that way. You, you got to put things together. You, you got to hire people that are smarter than you, hire the best people you can possibly get, and give them freedom to innovate, give them freedom to challenge. Like at Convault, I said, we had a extremely talented dev group that we had put together. And, hey, Rajiv, you've, you've got the freedom to innovate here. You can take X number of your resources. Just keep Al Bundy was my CEO. He reported to Al. Just keep us informed. You have freedom to take a chunk of resources. The activists heard that they have a heart attack. But that's why we were successful over a long period of time, because the guys would figure things out on their own and bring ideas to us that we could used to enhance the value proposition of our company. And then people, you got to pay them well, you got to treat them right, and there's some loyalty, and there's a morality here. And the morality is this. I take over Convol. I got 10% of the company at three cents. I'm getting options. They're giving me higher percentage. And you got all these people that are killing themselves and creating value. To me, even as we got big, a number of these, it was like, I'd be damned if these people are creating all these wealth, I'm going to take, I, I need 100 people, so fire this, these 100 people because I want to go to India or I want more resources here. No, if you need to do that to survive, that's one thing. But if you have a company like Convol that's sitting with a half a billion in the bank and generating cash, 
You don't have to do that. Yes, you can increase the stock price, by the way, and everybody's going to be happy. But the culture to do that is gone. The innovation, the risk-taking disappears. All the companies that I've managed, I've managed that way. And ethics in terms of you got to be ethical. You got certain laws and regulations, stay to the right. Yes, you can... You got lawyers to make sure you're you're staying there, but don't cross lines ever because I'm going to fire you, and I do, and we did at great expense, by the way, many times. It's a very, I call it creative, interactive, and we communicate, and we always give the employees the facts. We don't try to sugarcoat anything. Here it is, folks. Here's good. Here's the bad. When I was running these companies, we'd write a quarterly board report. Well, it's like an analyst report. These numbers look great, but underneath, there's some bad stuff going on here, and you ought to be aware of it. That gives you some flavor for leadership. Leadership. And you've got to be the cheerleader. There's a speech that CFO of Confluent gave as I was leaving, which captures it to a T. I had nothing to do with it, but he captured the essence of it pretty well. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? If I can find them, it's people similar to myself in the sense that they're innovators. They're not just following a a bureaucratic script. These are smart people who understand and are excited and passionate about the vision of what we're trying to do. That same thing, that treat people well and make sure we pay them. We're not looking for the last nickel here. We're looking for great execution capabilities and tech Things are changing. These people are adaptable. And companies are teams. You got to be a team player. You can afford a few outliers who are really creative. But in general, you're in a team and you're on the field together fighting to achieve certain objectives. And then ethics is really, really important. Not just for me, but that goes all the way down. That's why you've never seen anything in the papers about any company I've run in terms of somebody crossing a line. And loyalty goes both ways, especially in tech. I would think it's very competitive to keep good people. So to creating an environment that it's not just money that keeps somebody there, but they want to be part of yeah, this we, culture, if you will, that you create. Yeah, we had a great culture. And culture is important. I've done this a lot, obviously. I'd say Commvault was the best. The culture we built, it was high energy. People were extremely creative, interactive. If somebody got in trouble, there were 50 people trying to pick them up instead of step on them, you know. The Commvault culture was fun. It was extremely rewarding. It was just a great place to go to work. Do you miss that part of it? Yeah, I miss it because I love building companies and doing these things. I like where my life is right now and the things I'm doing at at this age and have the freedom, a little bit more freedom to do other things. And you deserve it. (laughs) A question I ask everybody at the end, what advice would you give to the 20-year-old you today? Well, the 20-year-old you was the guy playing golf and partying and doing all the other stuff. If I look back on it and the way it turns out, even though it was, let's call it, uh, my education was a rough start, I'm not sure I'd change it because if you look at this story, if I wasn't so poor in my engineering studies, I wouldn't have ended up at Columbia. If I didn't end up 
Columbia when I got my MBA. This thing does, if you look back on it, good has come from every one of these issues that I had along the way. So I'm not sure I would change it. And in my mind, by the way, even when I was screwing around, I knew it was going to be successful. I, I still had, I never lost my confidence, even though, you know, I was hacking around doing all these things. Well, we're a product of all of those experiences, right? And we learn from them and we move forward. But I always think I wouldn't necessarily change anything, but there are certain factors that are just common, and that is good work ethic and all those sorts of things. But that doesn't mean anyone would change. You are who you are today because of all those experiences. Even though as a teenager, I had great structure, work ethic, and I'm in college and I'm bouncing all over the place. I wasn't ready for it. Mentally, it just wasn't there. I tell my grandkids, don't do what, what, <laughs> what I did. <laughs> First year, second year college student, don't do that. What I tell them is put more balance. Yes, you can go to a party, but put some balance, get some structure to your life. So that's what I tell them. Wasn't so successful telling it to myself at the time. Your story, life lessons, and especially your experience is really beneficial. And a lot of these podcasts get shared with other people. We can sometimes tell our kids or our grandkids something, but when somebody else who's had your kind of success relates these stories and relates these experiences, it really can have an impact on people. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate that. Sure appreciate you coming in. I'm sure we're going to do this again sometime. <laughs> Thanks. It's a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, Bob, for sharing your story. This has been educational and shows how hard work and a belief in the people is what makes our success possible. And it also points out that always moving forward in a positive way allows us to grow and succeed. You continue to make every day productive. And thank you for the supporters of our podcast, Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Eisenhower Medical Center, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wines, all of whom make the Bighorn Podcast possible. We will be back with another edition of Interesting People and Their Extraordinary Stories very soon. Thanks for listening.